Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 95, the book of Matthew, chapter 27, the second continuation. Well, as we're nearing the end of our extensive study of Matthew's gospel and all that has been revealed, about Jesus' life and, and his teachings along the way, we have arrived at the epic redemption history milestone that had its beginning in the Garden of Eden. And now it rests at the foot of a Roman cross around 30 AD. Let's reread just a short section of Matthew chapter 27. Open your Bibles. To Matthew chapter 27, we're going to just read verses 46 to 54. 46 to 54. Yeah, we'll back that up. Let's make it 45. I'm sorry. From noon until three in the afternoon, all the land was covered with darkness. At about three, Yeshua uttered a loud cry, Eli, Eli, lama shavaktani, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? And on hearing this, some of the bystanders said, he's calling for Eliyahu, he's calling for Elijah. Well, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and soaked it in vinegar and put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. And the rest said, wait, let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. But Yeshua, again saying, crying out in a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. At three in the afternoon, during the hours on Passover day, that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, the sky, and it seems all the atmosphere, turns dark and ominous. Now, darkness in the Bible is always symbolic, and, 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 and it projects the presence of evil and just as often of God's impending wrath. Keep that in mind. Yeshua finds sufficient breath as he hangs suffocating on the death stake to shout out in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Even in death, he is speaking prophetically from one of the most profoundly messianic psalms in the Bible, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 2, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why so far from helping me, so far from my anguished cries? In those words, some onlookers thought they heard Jesus calling for Elijah. This is another one of those conundrums that has baffled scholars for ages. Why would anyone think he said such a thing? Modern language scholars have offered a solution that I think probably resolves it. It's better known today that there were multiple Aramaic dialects in use then, and was used so widely in the 
Middle East in the first century, that if one were to list the languages that everyday Jews on the Holy Land spoke, it would likely be in order Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. In one of the Aramaic dialects, it seems to have been common in the Galilee, what Christ is recorded to have said moments before his death may have sounded to the ear like Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, as opposed to Eli, Eli, Lama Azabachthani. See how close that sounds, okay? In other words, Eli sounds very much like Eliyah. And from the dry mouth and the parched lips of the dying Messiah, and to the ears of a Judean, the two words might have been indistinguishable. So in English, what some thought they heard him cry out was, Elijah, Elijah, why have you deserted me? You see that? Yeshua's call for Elijah would have made sense to a Jew because Elijah was expected in Jewish tradition to return on Passover, which is why to this very day at the Passover Seder, Jews will symbolically leave an empty seat at their table along with a goblet of wine for Elijah. Now, not only does the Aramaic dialect matter, help resolve this issue, but what further bolters the, bolsters the argument for it is that next we read that a bystander immediately thinks to offer Yeshua something to drink. Huh. Why? In other words, the bystander thought that Yeshua's dry lips and parched throat and lack of lung power at this point caused whatever Jesus said from the cross to not be entirely intelligible. So the hope was some liquid would help him to speak more clearly. What was offered to Yeshua wasn't really vinegar as we usually read it. Okay, who would drink vinegar? no matter how thirsty they were. The Greek word is oxos, and it is no doubt referring to a cheap, low-quality wine that the poorer parts of society drank. So why offer wine, not water, to a thirsty man? Because of the alcohol content in the wine. See, the goal was mainly to help dull the pain while providing a little bit of relief for thirst. Well, Christ is now dead. His spirit has left him. And we must, at this point, ask ourselves, what just happened here on the cross? How are we to understand its ramifications? What was Yeshua intending by pushing out those dying words about God, his father, abandoning him? 
See, Christians often go no further in attempting to understand exactly what transpired on that cross than to repeat the well-worn phrases like, well, Jesus atoned for our sins, or his blood paid for our sins, or his, he was a sacrifice for our sins. Well, those phrases are spoken millions of times over in churches worldwide every week. But those simple thoughts don't explain how or on what premise Yeshua accomplished those things. Let's attempt to go beyond those traditional sayings and see if we can put together a, a, a coherent and understandable, a biblically-based explanation. Now, I want to say in advance that whatever you may think you hear coming from me in no way repudiates or even challenges the notion that in some mysterious and marvelous way, Christ suffered and died so we can have eternal life. Well, repeatedly during his ministry, Yeshua appealed to the Jewish people to pay attention that he was fulfilling the centuries-old biblical prophecies about Israel's Messiah. Now, few prophets present such amazing predictions about the Messiah and the details of his death as Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. Now, we've read it a few times, sometimes in small portions, but I'm going to again draw on a, just a couple of its verses to make a point. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains which he suffered, yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes. He was crushed because of our sins, the disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. Now, to understand what Yeshua set out to accomplish, we must focus at least as much on his humanity as on his divine nature. This is because just as Adam is biblically representative of all humanity since creation, humanity is a fallen and, and sinful race, so Christ carried a similar burden upon his human shoulders. Every person is responsible to God for our sin nature, that is unavoidably passed down to us from Adam, but also for our own personal sins of misbehavior and immoral thought. God, being just and true to his word, had to punish us collectively as a race of created creatures for our rebellion for our disobedience to his commandments. He could not behave as a kindly grandfather, just 
looking the other way and going against his own ordinances. So the father more or less consolidated all the sins of the world and placed them onto Jesus. And on the cross, Yeshua was divinely crushed under the unbearable weight of God's wrath that had been building up for millennia. Would have been nice if in the gospel accounts a fuller understanding of what Yeshua experienced and accomplished from a spiritual perspective had been, I don't know, pulled together into a single narrative and carefully explained in detail for the benefit of posterity. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Instead, it seems to have fallen mostly to the learned Paul three decades later to think it through, to assemble it, to order the many elements and data points to give us a, a, a better explanation. But even his explanation of the matter is somewhat confounding because the premise of it is so contrary if not illogical, to our modern, Western, human manner of thinking. And also because it's not organized into a nice, neat, Greek-style, systematic theology. We can read Paul's words, yet it can be hard to make sense of them because it's not presented in a form that we're used to hearing from a pulpit. In his book of Romans, we read the following in regard to that fateful Passover day and the transaction that occurred on that cross. In Romans 5, verse 12 through 19, <clears throat> Paul starts it off, good old Paul, here's how it works, he says. It was through one individual that sin entered the world. And through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through to the whole human race, inasmuch as everyone sinned. Sin was indeed present in the world before Torah was given, but sin is not counted as such when there's no Torah. Nevertheless, death ruled from Adam until Moses, even over those whose sinning was not exactly like Adam's violation of a direct command. In this, Adam prefigured the one who was to come. But the free gift isn't like the offense. For it, because of one man's offense, many died. But then how much more has God's grace, that is, the gracious gift of one man, Yeshua the Messiah, overflowed to many? Now, the free gift's not like what resulted from one man's sinning, for from one sinner came judgment that brought condemnation. But the free gift came after many offenses and brought acquittal. For if, because of the offense of one man, 
death ruled through that one man, how much more will those receiving the overflowing grace, that is the gift of being considered righteous, rule in life through the one man, Yeshua the Messiah. In other words, just as it was through one offense that all people came under condemnation, so it is all through, so through one righteous act that all people came to be considered righteous. So just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the other man, many were made righteous. I'm going to try to expound on this using modern terms and language. One man caused the problem. A long while later, another man solved it. It really boils down to that. Adam created sin and the consequences of it that extend to every human ever born. Yeshua bore those sin consequences for every human ever born. And since the consequence for sin is to bear the wrath of God that includes both physical and spiritual death, that is what Jesus bore on the cross. It could have been no less. And for him, and for us all, besides the tangible consequences that come from sin, so God's wrath necessarily begins with him abandoning us. For Yeshua... That meant that the Holy Spirit, the God Spirit, that lived within him, the unique, the incomparable divine aspect of his being, left him for a time as he hung on that execution stake. Especially because of who he was, who he knew he was. That had to have been the greatest of the many agonies that he felt. When the Holy Spirit left him, he was no longer whole. He knew in advance this was going to happen. He knew he was going to bear all of the Father's wrath. As the soul, as the collective representative of sinful humanity. This is why on the Mount of Olives, he prayed, he pled with his father only a few hours before his ordeal. Remember this prayer in Matthew 26, verses 27 through 29? Grief and anguish overcame him, and he said to them, my heart so filled with sadness I could die. Remain here, stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face saying, Father, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I want, but what you want. See, it was the cup of wrath from his father that Christ feared the most. We also can't just race by another uncomfortable aspect of his ghastly ordeal. 
Christians commonly speak of Jesus as a sacrifice, a sacrifice for us. So was he literally a human sacrifice in all of its grisly senses? Isn't God against human sacrifice? Are we to understand that God made an exception in this one case? See, this is an issue that has caused many Jews to run the other direction from Christianity because it certainly seems that human sacrifice that is deplored as pagan and wicked by the church is also the way that Christianity has always framed what Christ did and what he was. And there are New Testament passages that seem to support this notion. Romans 8, 3. For what the Torah could not do by itself, because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending his own son as a human being. Underline as a human being. With a nature like our own sinful one, but without the sin. God did this in order to deal with sin, and in so doing, he executed the punishment against sin in human nature. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we deliberately continue to sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only the terrifying prospect of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies. The Hebrews verse now starts to tiptoe into the issue of Jesus as a blood sacrifice. But then we get this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made this sinless man be a sin offering on our behalf so that in union with him, we might fully share in God's righteousness. And I see lots of heads doing this out there. So how do we not frame what happened on that cross as a human sacrifice. See, this is the very thing God averted when he asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but then stopped him, and he substituted a ram. See, in reality, the way the Second Corinthians chapter 5 is worded in the Greek, that's not the way the complete Jewish Bible presents it. And while the complete Jewish Bible says that this sinless man was made a sin offering on our behalf, in fact, the word offering is not there. The Greek says only he was made sin on our behalf. There's a wide gulf between the intent and effect of the terms sin and sin offering. The first term describing the problem, the second a solution. That said, most Bible interpretations of this verse heavily imply, if not outright state, the same meaning that the complete Jewish Bible dares to say out loud, that Yeshua was a human sacrifice a sin offering for us. Hebrews 10, verses 11 and 12. 
Now every Kohen, every priest, stands every day doing his service, offering over and over the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this one, after he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, sat down at the right hand of God. See, the complete Jewish Bible wording of this verse is very much in line with most of the other standard English Bible versions. So once again, how do we not see Jesus' human sacrifice? It's just that he was sacrificed on a Roman death stake as opposed to a temple altar. Now hopefully you're seeing where this creates all kinds of uncomfortable theological, if not moral issues that painless denominational doctrines gloss over, but don't actually address. See, it's critical to observe the simple theme underlying every one of these passages. It is that Jesus became the object of God's wrath. Therefore, the problem with trying to perfectly equate Christ's death with the death of animals as Torah prescribed Levitical animal sacrifices of atonement for humans, this starts to diverge. God does not pour out his wrath on sacrificial animals. Rather, the death of the animals is what provides legally required the atonement mechanism so that God forgives the human sinner and then any form of God's wrath is averted. However, in Jesus' case, God's wrath was not averted. He indeed experienced the full weight of God's wrath, which is entirely uncharacteristic of an altar sacrifice. This is because Yeshua was somewhat different from animals who died to atone for sin. Rather, for a few moments, Yeshua represented the sin of all humanity, and so he bore the ultimate punishment. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, when it's properly translated, Yeshua became sin. He became the personification of sin and God punished the sin of mankind through the wrath he imparted on his only son, Yeshua, as he hung on the cross. Therefore, since Jesus' death can't precisely be equated to a temple altar sacrifice, what about him being our Passover lamb? Well, one of the most quoted New Testament passages in this regard occurs in 1 Corinthians 5.7. Get rid of the old hommets so that you can be a new batch of dough because in reality you are unleavened. For our Passover lamb, the Messiah, has been sacrificed. One problem. The word lamb doesn't appear there in the Greek. 
the, actually the King James Version and some others render it literally and quite correctly. It says, using King James, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Hmm. See, notice that here Christ is our Passover, not the Passover lamb. How are we to understand that, that strange statement? See, the Passover is the totality of the event when in Egypt death passed over, God set apart people who loved and obeyed him, but did not pass over those who worshiped other gods. And back when Israel was in Egypt and they were preparing to escape Pharaoh's grip, each Israelite family was instructed to kill a lamb. They were to use its blood to paint on the doorposts of their homes as a sign that they trusted in God. And then they were to roast and eat the lamb. It was not described as a ritual sacrifice. The lamb was a meal with its blood a symbol and a sign, a sign of protection, not as a substitute. So the Passover event was completely unlike the Levitical sacrifices because the Passover lamb's blood was not used for atonement or forgiveness, but rather it signified obedience to the God of Israel, and thus the households with blood on their doorposts were identified as one of his own. Bottom line, while there are indeed similarities and lessons to be taken between Yeshua's death on the cross and what went on in the temple altar with the Levitical sacrificial system, there's also significant differences. we find the same thing true with the Passover and the Passover lamb. So, Christ was not just a higher form of animal sacrifice, so to speak, higher than bulls and goats. Nor, of course, was he the literal centerpiece of a ceremonial meal. Rather, we are to take these statements about him being a sacrifice and the Passover or Passover lamb as approximations, as comparisons for which we have earthly representations. See, with this transcendent matter of Yeshua's death somehow averting our spiritual death, the divine transaction that took place was unlike anything that had ever happened before. And we must not make the comparisons to Levitical altar sacrifices or to the Passover lamb too strong or take them too far. Even the use of the term sacrifice regarding his crucifixion, while appropriate, cannot be held in the strictest technical or ritual sense of it 
but rather in the sense of Yeshua selflessly doing something for us we cannot do for ourselves. God finally brought to fruition his ancient plan to deal with sin. He poured out his wrath on his son who had taken on the sin and sins of the entire human race as he virtually became sin. Thus the wages for sin, which is death, was finally indeed meted out by God. No longer was it held back. I want to frame this in a way that might make a better impact, but again, please, just don't take this illustration too far. Um, it's not meant to be precise. Let's use a familiar word for a person who disobeys the laws of their society. A criminal. In God's eyes, a person who disobeys his laws and commandments is a criminal, a sinner. Thus, in God's justice system, a criminal must pay the price for his or her crimes. Thus, in that sense, Christ died not as a sacrificial animal or as a human sacrifice, but rather as the universal sinner, the universal criminal. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, starting at verse 3. For what the Torah could not do by itself because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending his son as a human being with a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. And here it comes. God did this in order to deal with sin. In so doing, he executed the punishment against sin in human nature. He executed the punishment. He did it. God executing punishment on sin is a far cry from having sin atoned for and thus his wrath being avoided. And according to Paul, God did execute his wrathful judgment on sin by executing it upon Jesus. All the world's sin was consolidated into one big pot placed into Christ. It was as though Christ had himself not only become the universal sinner, but also sin itself. And so God dealt with it in that way. It involved elements of the Levitical sacrificial system and of Passover, but it wasn't precisely either. See, this kind of reshapes our concept of the, word atone, uh, of the word atonement because the main way we have understood it over the centuries is that he was a substitute in the same way a sacrificial animal or the, uh, was a substitute. And while that's true in some ways, it's also scripturally 
an incomplete definition. See, Jesus was not a human sacrifice. Rather, for a mysterious moment in time, he was divinely deemed the universal human criminal, bearing the responsibility within himself for all the crimes, all the sins of mankind. And God punished him horribly for it. Further, the irony of those two criminals flanking Jesus on the cross is not to be missed. They were guilty criminals in reality, but Yeshua was only a guilty criminal because God imputed their guilt and ours upon him. Now, the ironic comparison for us to see between Christ and those two men hanging beside him is intended. So what does this mean for us? Now, assuming you have a sincere faith and trust in the God of Israel and his son Jesus of Nazareth as your Lord and Savior means that in a mysterious way, you did not really escape your punishment. In God's eyes, you've already suffered it. And assuming you maintain that trust, you'll never have to suffer it again. See, this is why we're told as believers we are to identify with Christ's death and then later his resurrection. Your sins and mine were poured into him. And so the wrath he suffered for sin, we suffered vicariously through him. It's already happened, folks. Our punishments already occurred. It's finished. Again, this only applies to those who have and maintain faith and trust in what God did for us. Why wouldn't everybody want this for themselves? Now let's get real and step back. How can my sins in the 21st century retroactively become Yeshua's sins in the first century? In some ways, it sounds preposterous. Because it is, for lack of better words, a happy fiction. Or better, a happy legal fiction that God accepts as true within his justice system. His unique justice system that doesn't operate like human, earthbound justice systems. God has determined, he simply determined it. He's ordained that as part of his justice system, he will inflict upon one man all the punishments and all the wrath for all the sins of all the humans who agree to subscribe to his justice system. A system consisting of two separate elements for two separate purposes. Jesus Christ and the law of Moses. The first is for redemption. The second 
is our guide for living the redeemed life. Subscribing begins with acknowledging the God of Israel, then trusting His Son as our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Redeemer. God's infliction of His wrath upon one man, Jesus, for all the world's sins, actually reflects divine proportional justice that blames the origination of all sins upon one man, Adam. This is why the anonymous writer of Hebrews can say that if we won't accept the death of God's Messiah as our own death, and thus our suffering God's wrath right along with Christ on that cross, there's nothing more that is available to pay for our sins. And since the redeeming event of the cross there is no amount of blood that can be spilled on a temple altar that will suffice. The Levitical sacrificial system for sins isn't replaced per se, it's simply no longer relevant. In fact, since the cross, the term sin offering has become an oxymoron. So, does that mean that all of the law of Moses has also become irrelevant? Well, Yeshua directly answered that question several months before his death. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Probably most of you can recite it by heart by now. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you, till heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke's going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teach others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Yeshua makes it clear that the Torah continues to be relevant and in force until the present earth and universe are obliterated and then recreated. Why? Because sin and sins didn't die on the cross. It's easily observed that both certainly continue to exist. Rather, it is that the sinners that have committed sins died but only certain sinners, the ones we call believers, the ones I hope are the ones listening to this right now. If we don't look to the Torah and the law of Moses as our guidebook for what sin is, what moral behavior is, what right and wrong is, what good and evil is, how are we going to have any common standard by which to judge our own behaviors and thoughts. Even more, how will we know God's standard for all those things? Ah, but now we get to deal with yet another interesting issue. Verse 51 explains that at that moment, at that same moment Yeshua expired, the veil, of the temple, tore from top to bottom, 
At the same time, there was an earthquake so powerful that rocks broke. Now, many Bibles, such as the complete Jewish Bible, will call this temple veil the paroket, or say something about the inner veil. Neither of those translations is an actual translation, but rather, both are traditional Christian interpretations and doctrines that came much later. The Greek word is katapesima. It simply means veil. The temple had two veils, an inner and an outer. The inner veil separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. See, there were two separate chambers that served two different purposes and so were restricted to use by two different sets of people. The holy place, the less holy of the two chambers, was that front chamber where regular priests could enter and operate. In fact, they had a number of duties to perform there on a daily basis. On the other hand, the innermost chamber, the holiest, the holy of holies of the two, was where in more ancient times, the Ark of the Covenant sat, but no longer, since after the Babylonian exile, the Ark went missing. Only one man, the high priest, could enter that chamber and only one time per year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This wasn't Jewish tradition, this was Torah law. The front chamber had a veil that separated it from the temple courtyard where the temple altar was located. Herod's temple and Christ's era was considered one of the wonders of the world. Its enormity that some said looked like a white snow-capped mountain was enhanced by the presence of a thick veil that stood perhaps eight stories high. It could be seen from miles away. The veil's weight probably could be measured in tons. It hung from a specially constructed stone lintel. So the question now is, which veil tore? The inner veil or the outer veil? Well, another phenomenon happened at the moment of Christ's death. It was that, after, that several dead people that were considered holy, righteous, came alive in their graves. Then after Yeshua rose from his tomb, these newly alive folks walked out of their tombs and into the city of Jerusalem, and it was attested to by many people who saw them, must have known who they were, So it seems to be that at Christ's death, they awoke, but not until Yeshua awoke three days later did they walk out of their tombs. Now, this is hard to explain. I don't think I have a good explanation that goes beyond what others have attempted. See, there's much suspicion 
among Bible scholars that over time something got lost in the transmittal of this portion of Matthew. For one reason, it begs the question, if these people now remained alive forever, or if they died again, for such an enormous miracle as the dead being resurrected, there is nothing more than a simple mention of it. And all the ramifications seem to be left to the minds of the readers. Now, what supplies us with some informa uh, interesting information that's all too short on details is that the Roman centurion and some others as well that were overseeing Christ's crucifixion experienced the earthquake and they saw, we're told, they saw what was happening. They were so overcome by it, they were so overcome by what they, they witnessed that Matthew has them saying, he really was the Son of God. Now let's get back to the matter of the veil. Wherever exactly the crucifixion took place, it was A, not far from the Jerusalem city walls, and B, up on a relatively high place with plenty of access for people to walk by and gawk. Now, I believe that place had to be somewhere on the side near the top of the Mount of Olives. And further, the renting of the veil and other things that happened were witnessed, we're told, by the Roman soldiers. Plainly put, there is no way the Romans, standing at the foot of the cross, or anybody else there for that matter, could have seen or even known about the condition of the inner veil of the temple. But they did have a plain view of the enormous, highly visible outer veil. It's theorized, and rightly so, that since the monumental outer veil was hung, on, hung from a rock lintel, and there is specific mention of rocks splitting due to the violence of this earthquake, that the lintel cracked and it broke under the terrific weight of the veil. It necessarily would have split from the top down. Now, it's my opinion that indeed was the outer veil that split, opening up a view into the front chamber where the regular temple priests could enter. Almost all of Christianity, at least a large part of it, asserts it was the inner veil to the Holy of Holies. And this is assumed because of some words that Paul says about believers becoming priests. First Peter, there's another area. Peter says in verse 2, 3 through 5, For if you have tasted that Adonai is good, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by people, but chosen by God and precious to him, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be priests set apart for God to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him through Yeshua the Messiah. Now there's a few other passages, in addition to Paul and Peter as well, that describes believers as priests. 
which has led to the church doctrine of the priesthood of believers. However, we also read this in Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great Kohen Hagadol, uh, the high priest, great high priest, who has passed through to the highest heaven, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we acknowledge is true. See, here's the thing. If, as believers, we as a result of Yeshua's death are allowed into the Holy of Holies, as represented by the tearing of the inner temple veil, if that was the case, then we don't become mere priests. We become high priests. Because only the high priest could venture beyond that inner veil. However, Yeshua is seen as our spiritual high priest, and there can only ever be only ever be one. Otherwise, the term high priest loses all its meaning. Bottom line, it was not the inner veil that tore. It was not the Holy of Holies that became symbolically open to believers. Rather, it was the outer veil that tore, which did symbolically invite all believers into it as servants, as priests of God in his kingdom. Paul, Peter, other Jews thoroughly understood this. And this is why they refer to us as priests and not high priests. Let's read just a little bit more of Matthew. Open your Bibles to chapter 27, verse 55. There were many women there looking on from a distance. They had followed Yeshua from the Galil, from Galilee, helping him. And among them were Miriam from Magdala, Miriam, the mother of Jacob, Jacob and Joseph, and the mother of Zavdai's sons. And towards evening there came a wealthy man from Ramataim named Joseph, who was himself a disciple of Yeshua. He approached Pilate. He asked for Yeshua's body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen sheet. He laid it in his own tomb, which he had recently cut out of a rock. After rolling a large stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, he went away. Miriam of Magdala and the other Miriam stayed there sitting opposite the grave. Next day after the preparation, the head priest and the Pharisees went, toge went together to Pilate, said, Sir, <clears throat> we remember that that deceiver said he was, while he was still alive that after three days I'll be raised. Therefore, order that the grave be made secure till the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he was raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to him, you may have your guard. Go, make the grave as secure as you know how. So they went and made the grave secure by sealing the stone and putting the guard on watch. <clears throat> We haven't read of women disciples of Christ until now. Two of them introduced, and they were both named Miriam. Mary of Magdala, better known to most Christians as Mary Magdalene, and we're familiar with her. But the Miriam, who is said to be the mother of, of, of Jacob, better known to us as James, 
and of Joseph is a little bit uncertain. See, in the listing of Yeshua's biological half-brothers, there is a Jacob and a Joseph. So this Miriam could well be Jesus' mother. But it would sure seem to have been a lot easier to have just said that. <clears throat> In any case, as the day of Passover wore on, evening was approaching, a man named Joseph, said to be from Ramataim, came to Pilate. Now, Joseph is identified by Matthew as a disciple of Yeshua. That he was able to get an audience with Pilate says he was probably of the aristocrat class and that Pilate previously knew of him. The book of Mark, chapter 15, identifies the day this happened as preparation day, the day before Sabbath. This is where our extensive study of the Hebrew versus Roman calendars and the timing of the feast days comes in. Okay? Remembering that John plainly says that among the Judeans, just the Judeans, Passover day is nicknamed Preparation Day. Then we understand this is what Matthew is referring to. It is still, of course, Passover day. But this one-day feast is about to end, and the immediate start of the week-long Feast of Matzah is about to begin. And since the first day of the Feast of Matzah is a special added Sabbath, then that means that Yeshua's burial had to happen quickly before the Sabbath began, or the body would have to wait for another 24 hours, theoretically, before it could be entombed. No burial could take place on any kind of Sabbath. Feast Sabbath, weekly seventh-day Sabbath, didn't matter. This is why the mention of the time of day, evening, and the urgency of getting Jesus' body down from the cross and placed into a tomb. Now, following tradition, the body was wrapped in a linen covering and Yeshua was laid into Joseph's personal tomb. See, apparently the tomb had only been recently completed. No one had yet been laid to rest in it. See, here's how burial typically worked for Jews in the first century. The deceased was cleansed with water for ritual purification. Then he was wrapped, he or she was wrapped in a linen cloth. Usually, various fragrant herbs and spices were wrapped up inside that linen covering for obvious reasons. And then the body was placed into a tomb. Tombs usually had resting spots to hold perhaps three or four bodies at once. See, a body was usually in there for about a year while nature did its work. And once nothing remained but bones, the bones would be removed and then placed into an ossuary, a bone box. Then it would be moved to another place, often a designated cave, where many, many 
of these bone boxes would reside as the permanent burial place. So tombs were used and reused scores, if not hundreds of times, by various people. A large stone was rolled to cover the door into the tomb, and then Joseph left, we're told. Matthew says the two Marys remained there at the tomb. Verse 62 takes place a day or so later. It says that the next day after the preparation, the chief priest, not the high priest, and some Pharisees together went to visit Pilate. Now, it's hard to place this exactly in time. Whether after the preparation means after the preparation of Jesus' body or it means the day after preparation day is kind of ambiguous. If they had gone to Pilate the day after preparation day, day after Passover day, then it means that they visited Pilate on a feast Sabbath. That's not impossible. If it means they met with Pilate the day after Jesus' body was, it was prepared, it might mean Nisan the 16th, the second day of the Feast of Matzah. I believe, pretty firmly, <laughs> that in order to make the timeline work, according to the prophecy of Jonah, it can only mean that they went to Pilate on the feast Sabbath, the first day of the Feast of Matzah, Nisan 15th. The concern of the temple and synagogue leadership, and thus the reason for the audience with Pilate was they were afraid that Yeshua's body would go missing because they understood Jesus to have said that after three days, he was going to be raised from the dead. And while they didn't believe the resurrection was going to happen, they were afraid that some of Yeshua's followers might come, remove the body, and make it appear as though he had risen. And if that happened, then the belief that Yeshua was the Messiah and the divine Son of God would spread like wildfire, putting the Jewish religious authorities' power and position at risk. So, they asked Pilate for permission to have guards at the tomb. Now, obviously, these were Roman guards they were requesting, or they'd have no need to approach Pilate. They could have just used a couple of temple guards. These men were far more concerned with making sure that the threat of Jesus was ended once and for all than with contracting ritual uncleanness from being near to dead bodies or in some way violating the festival Sabbath rules. Each gospel account tells the story a little bit differently. Luke has it that the women came to the tomb shortly after Jesus was laid in it, went back home until after the Sabbath, came back later, with spices to better prepare the body, but the tomb was empty. Mark has it approximately the same. See, here's the timeline of events that I think happened 
as it indeed properly fulfills the prophecy of Jonah for Messiah to be in the tomb, dead, for three days and nights. On Nisan 14, Passover, Christ was killed. On Nisan 15, Christ was in the tomb. This was a feast Sabbath. Nisan 16th was the regular seventh-day Sabbath, and Christ was still in the tomb. On Nisan 17th, Christ arose. This amounts to three days and three nights, as the Hebrews reckoned it. And it incorporates the reality of the various Sabbaths involved. Okay, we'll begin the final chapter of Matthew next time.